This week on the show, we have an interview with Warner Losh about the Unix history and its interesting tidbits, the 2.11 BSD restoration project of his that he did in his free time, the Unix Heritage Society is part of that, proper booting is what we're talking about, and also what the thing called Deathmatch is that he wrote. Check out our interview and I hope that you enjoy it. BSD Now, episode 362, 2.11 BSD Restoration, recorded for the 5th of August 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for truly paranoid people. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this very special episode because we have, after a while of waiting, an interview for you with Warner Losh this time, who has been on the show before. But nevertheless, he has news for us, and this is what this episode is about. Uh, welcome, Warner, to the show. Um, uh, first, for the people who don't know you yet or have forgotten who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with Unix and BSD? Oh, you bet. You bet. I've been involved with uh, Unix since my college days. I started on a Vax 11.750 running 4.2 BSD back in the early 80s, 1984, I think. And um, I've been a BSD user uh, for a long time and a FreeBSD user since the company I was working with uh, ported our software to FreeBSD uh, 1.0 Gamma because Jordan Hubbard also happened to be a client of ours. Um, I've done a lot of stuff with FreeBSD over the years, uh, security officer for a while, Served on several core teams, uh, done a lot of things, PC card, card bus, uh, dev match, uh, and uh, just general storage things uh, lately, uh, having to do primarily with optimizing flash performance for my company's um, fleet of video streaming servers that you might be familiar with. I work for Netflix, so they graciously let me optimize the FreeBSD storage system. Oh, that's very cool. And so we can blame you for a lot of good things. Uh, yeah, yeah. But if your set-top box doesn't hit play immediately, uh, don't, don't call me. Uh, <laughs> okay. we, we have people that we have a lot of, we have a lot of good people for that, that are actually better at troubleshooting uh, those sorts of things than I am. Uh, so, it's it's interesting that uh, you're such a, a BSD history buff, especially you know when we talk a little bit later about the the project you're working on, which is apparently older BSD than the first BSD you started with. <laughs> it was actually released after, even though it has a lower number. Ah, right, okay. Um, so uh, recently you spoke at Fosdem about the early history of Unix, uh, and then later gave a, a related talk at BSD Can. Um, do you think Unix history matters even more today? Uh, I do think Unix history matters. Um, there's, there's several reasons for that. Uh, Unix was a very innovative uh, system in its day, and it drove a lot of very interesting innovations, a lot of innovations that people seem to forget about and rediscover. 
And by knowing and understanding history, you can understand some of the uh, early uh, issues and problems with uh, different approaches. And you can also understand uh, the bigger context of you know, how we got to where we are today, why we do certain things and don't do other things, uh, and why there's a philosophy of Unix, but there are some things that don't quite fit the philosophy, like, say, sockets, and how that came about and how it evolved and how it turns out people actually tried to make networking stuff fit just a normal file descriptor and found problems with that. So by understanding all of that, you can understand why we have some of the things we have today. It, also, looking at the early uh, Unix code, if you're a kernel hacker, um, looking at the early Unix code, it's a lot easier to approach, a lot easier to read, a lot easier to understand what's going on. And in a lot of ways, the core algorithms that were used uh, at that time are still present in the kernel uh, today, modernized for multi-core uh, preemption, those sorts of things uh, for faster CPUs, different IO um, technology, but um, it'll help you understand basically what's going on, which will give you a jump on understanding the code if you go to read a modern BSD kernel. Yeah, it's interesting how many of the the concepts we have today came from Unix and basically haven't changed, like pipes. And mm -hmm. there's basically every operating system has pipes now, uh, and and it, it wouldn't make sense not to have pipes. And and if it wasn't for Unix, how would we have gotten like any of the things, even the things that aren't really related to Unix anymore? Uh, there's just so much of the, the core concepts came from Unix. Exactly, exactly. Pipes were this thing that oh yeah, we'll try this. It looks like it might be interesting to let us have a bunch of small tools to string together on these you know, old PDP 11s that didn't have much address space. So all the tools had to be simple because that's all you had space for. And you know, that one notion of an idea has flourished since then into a number of other operating systems. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Oh yeah, especially if you have the the history background and uh, the knowing where it originally came from and how it was implemented. Uh, so I teach a lot of students every year, and so the Unix history parts are the ones that usually where I lose most of the students, not completely, but at least they fall asleep. So do you think you know a good way of teaching students the Unix history without being boring? Well. Um, I don't know if I, I have a good way to teach students without being boring. I, I, I'm not a teacher. I don't have students in front of me, so I don't know if these things will work. But one of the things that I do when I'm just talking to people, like at conferences or you know, over a beer or whatever, um, is I try to relate how the different um, historical developments fit together. Because you know, if you go and read history in a quarter century of Unix or uh, some other place, you'll get a good list of what happened when but you won't know that, um, well, the networking guys over here that were developing it um, had a friend at Bell Labs who was feeding him new tapes kind of on the sly so that he could keep things up to date. And so he developed things in this particular way. Um, or that uh, different uh, other groups, like knowing that Dennis Ritchie spent some time at Berkeley, and that's how Unix got so established at Berkeley, was that... Um, Dennis and Ken spent time there. I think I may have just misspoke. It may have been Ken that spent a, a semester in the sabbatical there. But, you know, knowing that Unix is more than just the technology, Unix is also 
the people and the connections between the people and how those also played into how Unix uh, spread and was adopted is also interesting. So if you can relate um, how the different pieces fit together um, more than just a recitation of facts, that seems to work better. I know it works better in my talks with adults. I, I imagine it would work um, well with uh, students that uh, you have it. Sure, yeah. In a way... Yeah, I, I think the most interesting parts of some of Kirk's history talks are the kind of the personalities and just the stuff like, so they were, they were going to do this benchmark off between the BSD network stack and the uh, BBN one or whatever it was. Um, and, you know, there was this one test we were slower at and then this stuff got misdirected in the mail and, and we found a box and it had this code in it. <laughs> There's just so many interesting bits that, that make it more interesting. And I think the other thing is to really appreciate the Unix history, you have to first understand some of Unix so that you can then uh, appreciate the, the elegance of the way it was developed and, and just also how it so easily could have went very differently if it was slightly different people involved or if, or if person A hadn't met person B or just they both hadn't been in the same place at the same time one time. Uh, how, you know, different things would be. Exactly, exactly. There's there's a lot of person-to-person -person thing. There are, like you said, bake-offs. One of the reasons for 1 turned into 4.2 BSD was there was a bake-off between BSD Unix and VMS. And um, Cashton did a bunch of dumps of performance data to, to see different workloads so that um, 4.2 BSD could be uh, improved. And as they tested the system against each other, they found, oh, this, this will work better, this doesn't work so well, and they were able to come out with a much higher quality product because there was that cross-fertilization, because there was that competition. You know, Unix for the Vax, um, you know, there was a time when that was um, not a given deal in the military. They would think, oh, we'll just go with VMS. It's a tried and true system. It's performs much better, it's more reliable, more robust. And so a lot of things that um, they did was in these bake-offs was try to spur Unix development to make it faster, better, more robust. And in the end, um, Unix wound up winning because it was faster, better, and more robust for the things they needed. Yeah. And I think, you know, to Benedict's point about teaching, a lot of it is uh, making it matter to people. Because the mm -hmm. other part is looking at just how many bits of history we've already lost. Uh, whether it's, you know, when somebody had to rewrite this program based on only the disassembled uh, original binary or, you know, that this tape is lost forever uh, and so on. And it just makes us appreciate also thinking about, you know, the code we're writing now and making sure that we preserve that in a way that, you know, 30 or 40 years from now and someone <laughs> wonders how can we do that. Not only can they find the source code, but also... The thing we don't always think about is the the tools around it. Like to be able to to build, uh, you know, FreeBSD four. You kind of need a FreeBSD four system. Like you know, uh, you can't. You're not necessarily going to be able to just compile it on whatever computer you have thirty years from now. Yeah, that's you know, true. Be, uh, you know, we might have to think about preserving more than just the the source code history from uh, Git or whatever. Yeah, having. Um, uh 
having binary artifacts also is important so that you can go back and recreate things. Um, it's quite useful to be able to run the original binary, even if you have source. Um, some of the early Unix sources written in what's Kernigan and Ritchie style, which is pre-ANSI. And a lot of modern compilers just do not like it at all. And if you spend a lot of time and a lot of effort, you can find all the right switches to make it swallow that code. But there have been subtle language changes and not everything works if you do that. So having the original binaries and emulators um, that can run those binaries is quite important for uh, being able to recreate history as well, should you want to do that. Yeah, and so speaking of recreating history, we can get into your project now. So, so tell <laughs> us about your project to try to recreate BSD 2.11, uh, I guess, patch zero. Uh, you bet. You, with that. you bet. So um, for those of that don't know, um, you know, it's 4.2 BSD. Well, that was the fourth, that was in the fourth series of releases from Berkeley. Um, they did a 1 BSD, a 2 BSD, and a 3 BSD. 1 and 2 BSD were for the PDP-11, 3 BSD and 4 BSD were for the VAX. And Berkeley tried very hard to run away from the PDP-11 versions, but they were so popular that they wound up doing several releases of them. And we have those releases. We have copies of the master tapes um, up through, you know, there was a 2.8, there wasn't a 2.7 or a 2.6. It went from 3.2 to 2.8 for some reason that I don't know. I think it was because it was the 80th tape. There's a BSD 2.78, which is, you know, has notes around it saying, oh, there have been about 70 tapes released. So maybe that's why, maybe not. But um, there's a 2.8, a 2.9, a 2.91, a 2.10, 2.10.1. We have all of those releases. And 2.11, um, it went out uh, through Usenix, not through Berkeley. Usenix managed all the tapes there. And there was actually some data corruption on the early tapes. Well, not on the tapes, but on the system that made the tapes. So some of the games uh, had blocks of nulls where they should have had the source code to the games. Um, and so nobody preserved the early tapes at all. Uh, Usenix said, oh, there's some corruption. Let's, let's come up with a new thing. And so they remastered the tapes. And the earliest one that survives is at patch level 195, which is like... Um, 18 months after the original release. So all of the changes in that period were preserved. And we thought, oh, you can just run it backwards, you know, unapply the patches, because we're all used to modern patches. You do patch minus R, everything's cool, right? Well, these patches were posted to Usenet in a number of different formats. And um, when they were posted, some of these were like, here, run the shell script or extract this tarball. And when you did that, the shell script would remove files or the tarball would overwrite files. And so we don't have any extra context to go back to. So we can't run the sausage mill backwards to make pigs like you, you can with um, most modern systems. Um, and so uh, every so often I would ask people, hey, do you does anybody have an original tape? And, you know, people would just say, no, nobody has that. And, you know, that's impossible and all those all these things and so you know i just kind of let it sit there I, I encountered 211 bsd years ago when the retro bsd project was using it i was running uh retro bsd on some pic controllers um and kind of got interested at the time 
And then some of my more recent work, reconstructing um, uh, this obscure operating system called Venix, which was a system uh, version 7 port to the Deck Rainbow, which was my first computer. I got interested in um, BSD again. And then the whole coronavirus thing hit. And um, it's caused me some anxiety and sleepless nights. And um, you can either stay up and worrying about things um, uh, or you can you know, distract yourself. And this started as a distraction. It's like, well, let's take a look at the patches. What information was destroyed? Oh, it turns out that a lot of these files um, were brought in to replace stuff that was in the previous version. So I can just grab the previous version. And that got me so far. And there was about, after I'm doing that, there was about maybe a dozen files that weren't quite right, didn't compile, didn't work. Um, and so I was then able to um, go, well, they got this from 4, you know, from 4.3 BSD. And so some uh, about half of the files, oh, I could get it from 4.3 BSD because there was an updated 4.3 BSD and the changes were bigger. Um, oh, okay, I've got that. And then some of them are, well, um, one of the things that they changed from 2.10 to 2.11 was the archive format. There was an old PDP-11 specific archive format. Um, and then the new modern archive format that they decided to switch to because it would make things easier. They could do more things on the VAX and cross-compile and take it to the PDP-11 um, because the PDP-11s were really slow machines in comparison to the VAX. Uh, so they did that. And so I was able to pull that code in from and merge it with the 2.BSD 2.10 and the um, BSD 4.3 code. I was able to merge them together. And eventually I was able to have a string of patches all the way back to the beginning that was consistent, meaning all the information that's in the patches, um, all of the reconstructions I did didn't conflict with anything. Now that's kind of a low bar not to conflict. You can have an empty file not conflict and have it be totally wrong because there was constants to that file. And so I started thinking, well, you know, that's 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 an interesting outcome of the project so far. What? But let's let's see if I can actually build the system. And so I got into bootstrapping the system and ran into all kinds of uh, issues around that. I could talk for an hour and a half about them. A lot of the issues are kind of boring. But th the biggest one was they changed the assembler enough so that the um, system I started with couldn't assemble the old system at all. So I had to um, figure out how to use the version 7 assembler to assemble BSD binaries because the system call formats had changed between system 7 and BSD. So I couldn't just run the system 7 binaries. No, that'd be too easy. Um, and uh, so I had to figure out how to do that and use the system 7 compiler to compile in, to compile the BSD system calls to link that all together uh, using a um, PDP 11 a.out simulator so I could do that without having an actual system. So that's the first step of the bootstrap is to, to build that and then use the oldest 2.11 system we have, the patch level 195 system, to build a couple of things. And then I can, with those uh, couple of things, I have a, the bare minimum tool chain I need to generate um, the old binary format because one of the things that changed between patch level zero and 195 was um, patch level zero had all the old 
limitations. You had eight character identifiers um, and a bunch of other uh, limitations that they wanted to get away from. So they changed the binary format so they could have longer um, longer symbol names. Well, that presented a problem because I couldn't use the new compiler to build binaries for the old system because then you're mixing binary format types. So once I had the basic toolchain bootstrapped, I was able to use that to um, then bootstrap everything else. And last night I was able to create a um, boot tape for the original system for the first time. And I'm testing that out. And when I'm sure that's good, I'll be able to release it. But in doing this, I find, oh, this piece is missing or that piece is missing or that compiles but doesn't work. And I've um, gone through and debugged uh, all of those things in the six months or so that the um, you know, I've had sleepless nights. And so I'm getting very close to being able to um, you know, announce, hey, here are the tapes you can go try yourself. These are the setups you need to use with the simulators. Um, and here's the source code. Once I have that, um, my next step is I want to have each individual change in a, a Git repository I can publish on GitHub or someplace so that people can go through and look at the history and understand the history um, of the, the system because there were a lot of developments, a lot of innovations that happened um, during all of the patches that are really hard to access now because the patches um, are in a tarball that you have to untar and then you have to some of them are in char files that have little scripts you have to run or patches you have to apply by hand. And um, getting at each individual piece is difficult because they're in so many different formats. There's not a convenient way you can browse through history. And when you're looking at history in um, like uh, with GitHub's um, history browser or the, the Git commands history browser, oh, it's Git log and I can see what's going on or I can blame, I can find where things happened. Um, it becomes a much more accessible history. It's not history that's locked up. It's, uh, you know, I, I tend to liken it to having a, you know, creating a popularization or a, a history summary that anybody can read from documents that only certain people could read or are locked up at libraries or, or that, that sort of thing. So people that are interested in this can come and look at it uh, and um, be able to uh, then uh, understand what's going on and understand the progression um, and understand, you know, the interesting tricks, the PDP-11 has a very small address space. It's a 16-bit machine. It has a 64-bit address space, which um, through MMU magic doubles, you have 64 bits for code and 64 bits for data. Um, and then there's some overlays you can do. So you can swap code in and out, kind of a, a, a precursor to dynamic paging that you have in 32-bit systems. But looking at those techniques, you can see ways to make code fit in smaller spaces um, and ways to simplify the code that doesn't sacrifice functionality, uh, but allows it to fit in uh, the space constraints available. So um, that's why I got started on this project. Um, I thought, hey, you know, people told me I couldn't do it. It wasn't possible. There's no way I'd succeed, um, which also is a motivator. You know, because if I tried it and it didn't succeed, well, I'm no better than anybody else. And if I tried it and I succeeded, hey, you know, I get I get a little bit of uh, attention for doing the impossible. So um, that's the BSD 211 project um, that uh, if you're on my uh, one of my Twitter followers, 
I'm BSDM on Twitter. But if you're one of my Twitter followers, you can um, see the little teeny tiny incremental steps of progress. Or if you read my blog, um, you can read the bigger chunks of progress. And so in the coming weeks, I don't know when this is going to be airing, but in the coming weeks, um, there will be uh, pointers uh, to the artifacts posted. And when the GitHub stuff is, is done, that'll come up. And uh, so, yeah, that's my that's my 211 project in five or 10 minutes or however long I just talked. <laughs> well, so when when that's done, you'll have each of the patches basically as a git commit? Yes, yes. Um, each patch is a git commit and the um, each patch um, that was published, it was sent to a Usenet uh, news group. And so each of the patches has a header on it that will be the commit message that describes what the patch does, um, what, you know, also in, any interesting commands you need to run. Uh, also part of this, um, I'll have a series of scripts to uh, recreate each of the patches. Um, to go backwards, it's a lot of manual work, so I automated it. You know, I got back to patch 50 and I found a problem in patch 70, you know, 175. It's like, well, that's uh, 150 patches I got to redo by hand. Well, that got old in a hurry. So I automated that and I automated the bootstrap process. So now with just a couple of commands, I can go from historic artifacts to um, uh, a tape that has the original, um, my reconstruction of the original 211 um, BSD on it. Um, and that lets me go, you know, I can get almost to the end and find, oh, I'm missing the bootloader for this type of hardware that I know was in the original release. Let me go find it. I can I can look at things like that and then, oh, well, let's just regenerate it all. And I don't have to sit there and type. I can regenerate it and go get some lunch or go grab a beer or whatever. Um, and I have been publishing that as I go along to GitHub. Um, and one of the things I'll be adding to that would be um, a set of scripts that augment my scripts going backwards that will go forwards all the way through the current patch level, which is patch 469, which you might think for a system that was released in 1991. It's one of the oldest, longest, continuously uh, maintained uh, open source projects um, that's out there. It's certainly the longest operating system that's open source that's been out there. And... Um, you could go all the way through patch 469, which was released earlier this year, and be able to, to look at things and bring patches forward. Also, I hope to create a second set of patches that are just pure patches. Don't do this, don't do that, um, that are um, that kind of step back from the space constraints that made people say, okay, take this UU encoded uh, compress tarball and extract it because that's smaller than the patches um, needed to um, you know create the same tree image. So if you but if I create a series of patches, then you just download the patches, you run patch, you maybe run a couple of commands to go with it because um, even though there's a build everything command in 211 BSD, uh, when the binary format changes, you have to build the assembler first and install it, and then you have to build the, archive, the AR program and the loader, and you have to do that in a particular order. And, in a, and um, then you have to build other things um, 
some with old stuff, some with new stuff, uh, so that everything winds up working and you don't brick your system. You don't wind up with a system that you can't compile anything to fix it with, so you got to load something off of tape to, to, to restart. So that's something that I hope to um, you know have at the end of this project. You know That's probably a few months off, although there are some other people um, in the community. There's a, a, a group of people that use uh, what's called a PyDP11. People have taken historic... PDP-11 front panels that you'll find on a um, like a PDP-1170 um, and created some glue software so that you can put a Raspberry Pi in it and interact with it like you could the old uh, PDP-11s. And so there's a community of people that are doing that and, and some of them are interested potentially in helping out uh, creating the patch chain all the way up to the current because you know they've had to do this over you know, a span of 30 patches because the tape they have is for like patch level 430. They need to go from 430 to 470. Well, that's kind of a pain where you have to apply each one and, and it's not just patch and rebuild. It's, you know, the concept of using, you know, scripts or remove this or move there or build it in this order is still there. And so there are a number of people that have created what I'm talking about going all the way back to the beginning for the last 30 or 40 or 50 patches. Um, one of the hopes is that we, I take all the patches and apply it and um, actually wind up with the same system that's the snapshot of the other system, of the, the, the tape that's there today to, to, to prove that, you know, what I have is a, a reasonable reconstruction. Um, simply because there are a lot of places in the instructions. It's not as simple as, oh, just run the script and everything's fine. Or here's the five commands you run. There's um, some of the patches that say, you know, you'll be reading along, reading along. Oh, and you can remove blah, 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 and blah, 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 because they're now obsolete. You know, they're not at the bottom where the, the normal commands are to, to, to do this, but they're buried in the text. And several of the things that I found were missing actually were mentioned in the text. Had I read every single line verbatim and remembered it, I would have picked that up, but you know, since there were 200 patches, 195 patches to go through, I did not do that because that's a lot of time, and some of these patches are quite verbose. So, so it's it's been a kind of a labor of love. It's been a, a, a an interesting series of challenges. You know, it's tested my you know knowledge of early um, binary formats. I wrote a blog that talked about the early binary formats getting back to a question earlier. Um, and what that blog did is it explored what the format was on the PDP-11. But it also said, well, and now that you know that, this is what's going on today. And so you can take that simplified view and um, map it onto the more complex view that we have today, where we have shared libraries, we have um, different uh, sections that are treated differently. This is loaded into read-only memory. This is loaded into read-write memory. and and um, you know, all of these things can be brought in by anything. And so instead of three simple sections, you can have hundreds or more sections uh, in an executing program. And so, you know, that's another good reason to um, study history is just to help understand the current stuff better. Yeah. yeah and like you were saying, uh, because the computers were so much more constrained at the time and, you know, there was only one CPU and so on, it means that a lot of the code is uh, easier to understand. And looking at it first can can help you grasp the concept before you're looking at the more advanced 
uh, versions in modern operating systems that are you know much more complicated because you have a lot of moving parts all happening at the same right. time. Right. Understanding an algorithm that's not locked helps you understand how the locking um, happens in uh, newer incarnations of that algorithm because oftentimes when you're first approaching it, that's the thing you see the most of is I have to lock this, do this, unlock that. And there's um, a lot of relationship between the locks and you can easily get distracted in all of that and not see what's going on underneath. You not see the big picture because of all the uh, things you have to do to make it performant tends to obscure what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And like, uh, also you were talking about the limited address spaces and so on. And, um, sometimes a lot of those tricks maybe still make sense on smaller embedded systems where you, you still only have 16 megabytes of memory to work with. So you, you can't just do what we do nowadays and be like, Oh, there's gigs and gigs of RAM. It's fine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. hundred kilobytes here, hundred kilobytes there starts to add up. <laughs> yeah, it's all coming back to us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in a way, it's it's a bit like looking at a dinosaur and looking, oh, there's a couple of bones missing. I try to extrapolate how they would look like from a running uh, mammal that's uh, living nowadays. And so you go back the history and like putting the pieces together to find how it would originally look back then. Yeah, or we have a part of the bone. So, so we take that part of the bone and a modern chicken bone or a modern... Um, rhinoceros bone because the two animals look similar and say oh can we use that to recreate oh this part fits in that maybe it looked like the modern thing so yeah that's a little bit like that yeah mm -hmm. uh, so um coming back to the museum part of this question um the unix heritage society you mentioned a couple of times in the in your blog and your um, talks so what is that exactly and how can people participate in that uh, yeah, the Unix Heritage Society is something called TWOS. So you'll hear me say, use the acronym TWOS because the full name is a mouthful. Um, what they've done is they have tried to preserve the different Unix artifacts that have existed over the years, both inside of Bell Labs and once Unix was out in the world, uh, different commercial things or different um, open source things. Uh, and this is a group of people that have built... Um, a archive of these things that's freely available on the web. You can access it through their website. <clears throat> and uh, what they do is they strive to um, not only preserve the artifacts of Unix history in terms of code and binaries, but they also um, will find old troves of papers about Unix. Um, somebody retired and um, uh, or passed away and his family donated his papers and they've scanned them in and you can now go read about some of the historical developments as they were happening um, or read about them in a larger context. So you find out about networking. There's a lot of papers about networking at Bell Labs that aren't TCP IP, for example. There's something called DataKit and it represents kind of a, a different mindset that they had at the labs. They were a phone company they had a circuit switch mentality because that's how phone calls are um, created. You create a circuit from the originator to the, the other side, and it's, it's a circuit. It's hardwired the whole time. And so their networking technology, their data networking technology, reflected that. You would create a circuit, and then you would send data over the circuit. Um, and that's a very different mindset than the packet-switched um, paradigm that we have today that ultimately wound up winning. It's one of the reasons Unix was slow to have 
TCP IP was because of this big mindset gap. And so you can read all about uh, all the details of this and uh, dozens of other um, uh, you know, historical uh, events or mindsets or cultural things that were going on and, and understand where things are um, better. Um, to participate in this society, they have a number of mailing lists. And as these new artifacts come up, uh, there are different uh, opportunities for people to help restore or complete uh, the, the system. Uh, so that's other ways that people can participate. And of course, if you've got bits of lost history um, or anything that's old and Unix related, um, then that's something that's potentially of interest. Uh, there's both a public and a private archive um, for uh, twos. Um, William Toomey is the guy that uh, started it, and he is, uh, has a private archive of different early commercial releases that copyright hasn't expired on, but he archives against the day that he can release them. So even if you have something that can't be widely distributed, um, you can still deposit it in the archive so that it's not lost to history. And there's a lot of um, things. There's an early machine, early multiprocessing machine called MassComp. So they have a lot of MassComp releases that are in that archive. You can't just download because MassComp hasn't given permission for that. Um, but uh, you know, th those are other ways that you can um, you know participate. Um, but generally, being on the mailing list, talking about different things, following the different discussions, uh, participating in projects that come up every year or two as new artifacts surface is the primary way that most people um, participate in this. And of course, you can go back and read the archives of the mailing list or whatever uh, as well. Yeah, like I find it really interesting when I think uh, an old article from like a FreeBSD magazine from like the year 2000 or something got posted to one of the FreeBSD mailing lists. And it's like, I just wonder how many things like that mm -hmm. are out there, but have lost or just, you know, undiscovered uh, and how we can make sure more of the stuff we create doesn't end up getting lost. Right. There's other efforts. Uh, BitSavers is one that goes in and tries to scan all um, documents like that. They look at the old computer manuals from Deck and Sun and whoever else. And they'll scan those in, particularly ones that help people write simulators. They also preserve um, different uh, magazine articles, like you say, or recently um, somebody donated all of the early DECUS newsletters. DECUS is a DEC users group that um, uh, held symposium um, conferences back in the day and published proceedings from them and had newsletters that they would send out monthly to the, to the members talking about different developments, VMS, whatever's coming out, you know, this thing on the PDP-11 for Aristus is, is, is happening, what have you, things that were interesting to the different uh, groups of deck users. Um, you can now go back and read about it from the uh, first issue. I think the first five or six years worth uh, were donated and are being scanned. There's one or two that might be missing from that. So that's also an interesting thing that, um, you know, like you say, you, you read of this stuff and it's like, oh, well, that makes those, these things make more sense. You know, because we're just, we just have kind of the received wisdom today. We don't know how that wisdom accumulated or, you know, what bits of knowledge were retained or discarded to get there. And, and 
reading about that and finding out about that um, is really exciting. At least, you know, it is to me. And given the popularity of some of the stuff I've written about, maybe a few other people too. Yeah, like uh, when I started the papers.freebsd.org archive, which, you know, originally I was only really thinking about just making it easier to find the modern stuff. Uh, but mm -hmm. people contributed some older ones like PHK's original paper on jails and, and geom and so on. And yeah, it's like I use these things all the time. But, you know, when I'm using a jail, I didn't often think about the decisions that maybe went into deciding that's how the system was going to be, especially like the kind of uh, one-way mirror uh, effect of a jail where the host can see what's happening, but the jail can't see out and so on. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's, yeah, something we need to maybe give more consideration to is preserving the history of not just the, the work we're doing, but more of our, our thinking around it, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, maybe nowadays people don't write uh, papers and, and have proceedings quite as much as, as they did before. And maybe less of the, the thinking about it happens, you know. A, a recording of the talk from BSD can or whatever is is good and it's something we're, we're starting to be able to preserve but it doesn't necessarily always get into the thinking of, of why things were done a certain way and those yeah. could be well, interesting questions down the road exactly the, when you write a paper you have a different audience than when you're giving a talk and the talk is a time constraint and also you're talking to people with a wide range of abilities and interest and attention and you want to try to make the talk interesting in that context so you put different things in it than you do a paper where you want to say, well, I did this, 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 and this. And you don't want to leave anything out, even if it bores your reader a little bit, because some readers sometime in the future will want to know, oh, that's why this crazy thing is going on now. So I understand that and I can change it, or I understand it and I can't change it. Whereas, you, you know, having a detail like that in a talk at a conference 10 years ago is not particularly useful necessarily. So... Um, I like that we've that um, you've taken the approach of preserving all the different uh, forms of you know media that are produced. One thing that um, you know worries me is you know we have mailing list archives, and we have forum archives, kind of, but the forums tend to be more ephemeral and come and go, and so a lot of the thinking gets lost when that happens, and it's just a slow erosion over time of these things because. You know, if you're reading about how to set the jumpers on an ISOBUS network card, nobody's really going to think to preserve that. But if you are trying to recreate a FreeBSD 4 system and realize, oh, I need period hardware, oh, I need a network card, oh, this is all I can find, then that sort of thing suddenly becomes more interesting. And maybe a FreeBSD 1 system would need that. FreeBSD 4, everything's plug and play and their PCI stuff. But, you know, that's, you know, the kind of... Um, you know, the kind of thing that uh, you might not think of when you discard it. Um, oh, that's unimportant. I don't need that. But um, yeah, others um, might. That's interesting. And, and, you know, one of the papers I spent the most time on one was uh, end up getting into how FreeBSD boots, because uh, I was working on the, the encrypted bootloader stuff. Uh, but you've recently did an article on the opposite, and it's how do you actually basically reboot or shut down the machine properly so safely yeah with both the <laughs> uh, post about sync and then about how restart right. actually happens so what is the proper way to restart uh, a unix machine on, on modern systems it's like shutdown shutdown will make sure everything gets shut down 
Um, we'll try very hard to make sure all the dirty buffers get written out, um, but also bound its efforts so that it won't try forever to write things out. So the system will actually reboot. Um, so that's, you know, it's kind of an unsatisfying actor. It just works these days is basically what's going on. You can't just flip a machine off and you can't, uh, on some systems you can type sync and then turn it off immediately because the sync is synchronous. Um, Linux has a synchronous sync. When sync returns, everything's been written. So if the system is otherwise quiet, you could turn it off, for example. But BSD just schedules the writes. And um, there's some complications with UFS soft updates, where um, when a buffer is written, it will re-dirty itself so that it gets written again when other data is written out so that it can present a consistent view um, on the um, on the media in case the system were to crash while everything is being flushed out. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why um, if you're watching the shutdown, syncing dirty buffers, 1, 1, 1, 37, 28, 15, 2, you'll see sometimes. And for a long time, it's like, what on earth would cause that? Every process has been killed. Why? How do? Where do those thirty-eight buffers come from? You know, and it's uh, you know, it turns out that it's the soft updates code. Is that there's hidden dependencies behind something, and when that one thing writes out, all those dependencies become writable, and all of a sudden you have all these dirty buffers. You got to flush out to disk. So, um, you know, l l learning about how all of this. Um, evolved because, you know, as I went into in my blog post, older Unix systems, there was no reboot command. There was no way to even, um, you know, stop the kernel apart from the power switch. You know, it's like the kernel runs. Oh, you want to sync everything out? Type sync. And the reason, you know, you would type sync a few times, the first one had, had the effect. It would schedule all the I.O. The other two were a analog delay loop that the programmer was executing to give time for the stuff to finish before you turned off the machine. Um, and so, uh, you know, that got instilled in people and then reboot got implemented. That was moderately safe for some definition of safe. The first version I could find um, flushes the files out, waits five seconds and says, okay, we're done, <laughs> which, isn't exactly safe. Usually it's fine. Sometimes it's not. You know, if there was a lot to, to flesh out. Um, and <clears throat> so, you know, understanding how this evolved and, and seeing that, you know, oh, somebody told me to type sync three times. I'll just put semicolons behind it so I only have to hit return once, you know, and I'll be smart about it. Well, being smart about it doesn't really help because, you know, having the individual commands were the thing that made it interesting. And then you get all this apocrypha that uh, accumulates around it. Like, well, the first sync schedules it, and the second sync blocks until the first sync is done. You know, was a common thing that I heard in feedback to my blog. Um, you know, and there may be some system somewhere that does that. I didn't examine all of them, but I, I looked at all of the BSD kernels I could find, and none of them do that. I looked at all the uh, a couple of Linux kernels, none of them do that. Um, although there's a very rich history there I did not explore. I looked at all the System 5 kernels that um, 
I could find a copy of and couldn't find that in any of those either. So um, th it, it's just a myth that seems to have sprung up out of the air because nobody waits for all the current dirty buffers to finish before scheduling the rest. All they do is, all the sync call is literally, oh, walk all the buffers, schedule them for I.O. Linux will then say, have a barrier and wait for all of them to complete. Um, it decided to do that a long time ago. Most other systems don't. Um, although, uh, um, you know, some, you know, there might be some that I'm unaware of that, that have that as a, as a behavior. Because there's a lot of diversity in this area, you know, because people were trying to make it reliable. And so a lot of people hacked on it. Um, and a lot of solutions came and went in a vacuum because nobody knew what anybody else was doing because all this was commercial and proprietary and stuff. So it's only now that those, it's only now that the sources have leaked onto the internet and you can find these sources that you can actually go and study them, um, for, uh, academic purposes to see, you know, what's, what's, you know, going on with, uh, the different systems. And one of the difficulties is some companies were better than others about keeping the source tightly held. You can't find HP sources until it became system five, for example. So you don't, the early ones, you don't know what was going on. AIX is similar. It's very hard to find early AIX sources, although later AIX sources are very easy to find. So if you want to study these systems, you know, in the original, uh, from the original sources, it, it can be quite difficult because you would be left with decompiling all this stuff. And um, that's beyond, that level of effort is beyond my level of interest in the mm. topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a point where you just, okay, accept where it is now and uh, move on. <laughs> exactly. I have I have the man pages and what's in the man pages is all I can know. Yeah. Um switching gears a little bit to more modern uh types of systems or how things are done. Um can you tell us a little bit about a def match and what it is and if you plan to do more work in that area? <clears throat> yeah, dev match is a, a notion I've had for a long time that I didn't get a chance to implement until more recently. Uh, and it started with an observation that we have a bunch of drivers in the system and every single one of them has these tables in them that, uh, the probe routine will go through and says, does my plug and play information, uh, match, uh, the first entry? No, does it match the second entry? No. And so on. And so I thought, what if the driver could encode a pointer to the table and some metadata about the format the table was in? Uh, and put that into the loadable driver. Then you could write a program or leverage an existing program, um, KLDXREF, which already goes through and grabs module dependencies this way. Well, it, I augmented it to go through and grab this metadata and use that metadata to walk through the um, tables that were there to create um, kind of a master table so that when a event comes in, you can look at it and go, oh, um, that event, uh, for this kind of device, um, that driver over there or that module over there says it has a driver that will accept that device. And so we can match up the, uh, like card, you know, USB insertions, card insertions and so forth. Um, Hans Peter had for a number of years, um, a USB specific version 
he would go through and he would parse, he would put the USB tables in a particular ELF header and he would parse that out and, and generate DevD uh, rules to, to load all of the drivers. Um, starting in FreeBSD 11, that was became default. Um, in fact, from FreeBSD 10 to FreeBSD 11 is the only time the FreeBSD kernel has not has shrunk in size. And the only reason that it shrank in size is Hans um, moved all of the USB drivers out of the um, kernel and put them into DevD rules. So they would load on demand when you would plug the different devices in, which actually makes a lot of sense because, you know, you don't need that 20 meg of um, drivers in the system when you're, you've got a few hundred K worth of uh, devices of, uh, that can be loaded in. Um, so I did that. Um, USB worked, PC card worked, um, PCI kind of worked. And there, I had a Summer of Code student who helped flesh that out. It's mostly there now. Um, there may be one or two missing pieces. I, I haven't done an audit recently. Um, and so those are the, the and um, uh, Manu did uh, some work with uh, FDT. And so all of my work was focused on loading it right after boot. So anything that uh, you would basically load everything, you would have to know to load everything to mount root and, and start, but everything else could be dynamically loaded as part of the boot process. Mono took that a step further for embedded. And he's um, written a little bit of code that works with FDT, but would be easy to generalize to other things like PCI where it goes through the flattened device tree that all embedded devices pass to the kernel. And on the way in goes, oh, I need to load all of these things so that the kernel has all of the device drivers that are necessary. So the hard part of that was building the code that walked through the binary data structures that are in the loader.hints file that um, KLDXREF generates. So. Um, we could do something similar for PCI. Nobody's done that. That's something I would like to find uh, people to do the work on. Um, I did a lot of bootloader stuff about the same time I was doing this to get Lua in. And by the time I was done with Lua, I was kind of done with the bootloader for a while. So I've not um, pursued getting this into the bootloader. But, but th that's one way we can make the system even better because then we can load almost every device driver. Um, that way. And in fact, you can, um, there's a way that you can look at the PCI device to know whether or not you need to load it. And so you could load just a few of them in the bootloader, um, just enough to get the root file system going and go from there. And that logic might be a little bit complicated, particularly with UEFI and device paths and stuff, but uh, it is uh, possible to do. The information exists, and uh, also dealing with you know walking through different binary UEFI um, data structures, it's a little bit tedious and time-consuming. So another reason I've not tried to uh, pursue that because you can you can find the device that's booting, and you can find the path to it, and then find all of the devices along that path and know what to load. Um, but you know, making that all happen is uh, you know more focused effort than I have right now um, for, for this project. I mean, despite doing the crazy BSD 211 project, that's not a nice distraction. And if I get it done or don't, eh. But uh, when I'm doing FreeBSD stuff, I want you know to 
to be a little bit more focused on, on my efforts. So if anybody's looking for uh, a cool project, a cool summer of code project, it might be about that size. You can contact me or contact uh, uh, Manu. Uh, we can set you up with what you need to do to do the next step in this. So that's what's going on there and what I plan to do about it. Um, 12 and 13 will have about the same level of support unless somebody shows up quickly. We'll be branching 13 soon enough that I'm, I don't think a lot is going to change, but you never know. Somebody else might have their COVID project, you know, or turn this into their COVID project. So, yeah, you know, for a lot of devices like network cards and so on, it seems like devmatch makes good sense. You can decide to load those later and not compile a bunch of them into the kernel. Yeah, yeah it's great. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I like it. Yeah, particularly when you have a lot of choices for storage drivers, there's not so many choices these days. Um, if you have all the legacy support we have, though, there are. And bringing those in on a as-needed basis would, would also help the kernel size. One of the things I wanted to do with this, too, was to have a more minimal kernel so that um, we could improve boot time, maybe make it possible to load things on slightly smaller devices, although that... Um, hasn't really been a focus professionally for me in a number of years. Um, you know, having the ability to do that, having that flexibility to do that is, is a good useful tool that I think we should finish building because I think uh, that um, people would use the tool if they yeah, had it. And just in general, from a security stance perspective, it's better to have all the device, all the code you're not using not loaded. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the most so. secure code is the code that's not on the system. Yeah, you know, kind of reminds me of the series of uh, QMU vulnerabilities around the floppy emulation and so on. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, we probably didn't even need to be emulating that for most of these machines, right? Exactly, exactly. All right, well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, was there anything else you want to talk about before we let you go? Yeah, that was great. Oh, you bet. You bet. Uh, no, I think uh, I think I got everything off my chest that uh, I'd hope to get off my chest. Uh, I guess one last thing is, you know, if, if you are interested in the 2.11 BSD project, um, contact me. Uh, there are things to do that uh, people can help with, help out with um, that uh, would make it a, a better uh, recreation. So. Yep. We'll put the contact information in the show notes and links to your blog and oh, other perfect, perfect. contact information. People will be able to find you. Uh, if they can't find me now, they'll be able to after that, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you, guys. So, yeah, thank you for uh, joining us in this uh, interview. And um, I know you have a lot more stories to tell, so I guess this won't be the last interview. You'll do uh, maybe, I sh maybe I should have a, uh, a couple more in the future. It's been too long since the last one. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Warner. All right. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Benedict. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. You too. Okay. Bye. Okay. We hope you liked the interview with Warner and had some interesting insights into it. We definitely will repeat this exercise in the future and, um, yeah, we'll pick his brain for some other things that he uh, is uh, known for and has worked with. Yeah. Uh, and we're trying to line up more interviews. Uh, if you're doing something interesting and would like to be interviewed, please get in touch. Feedback at bsdnow.tv. But if there's something you would, uh, or if there's someone specific you would like us to reach out to, uh, 
we're happy to take your recommendations. We can't promise that we can make other people show up for interviews, but we will try. Oh, yes. Yeah, we will get everyone eventually. Uh, but if they go and uh, participate willingly, that makes it much easier for everyone involved. Yes. Uh, I think the only person we've ever had to handcuff to a chair was Paul Hennigan. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that was before my time, but I will hear the story about it. <laughs> Yes, that was that was very early days. I think the first ten-ish episodes or something we did that one uh, in person in Malta. Oh, at, okay. Uh, Great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, this week's episode of BSD Now was sponsored by our friends over at Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com/bsdnow and start doing your backups uh, because you know it's not something you think about every day, but it's something you're going to wish you thought about at some point. So get your backups done. And if you're going to do your backups, uh, you probably want them to be secure because you want to make sure that nobody else can read your backups uh, and that nobody else can mess with your backups. And that's uh, why we recommend Tarsnap. The client is completely open source, so you can take the client and compile it yourself and audit all the code and make sure it's doing exactly what it says on the tin, uh, which is, you know, uh, taking your files, compressing and deduplicating them, then encrypting them with your key before they leave the machine and then going into the cloud. That way, both the people at Tarsnap, the people at Amazon, and the people at the government can't read the files. Everything that leaves your computer is encrypted uh, with a key that only you have. You know, lots of different backup companies claim to offer encrypted backups, but it's usually, yeah, we receive all the data and then we encrypt it with our one key and we use the same key for every user. So it's encrypted, but, you know, we can decrypt it. With Tarsnap, they can't. So it's very, very important that you make sure you handle your key properly. Uh, if you lose that key, you cannot restore your backups and no one can help you. Uh, so make sure you're careful with it. But Tarsnap is the only way you can be sure that no one else can restore your backups. Yep, check out the tarsnap.com website for details, downloads, and information about how it works. Yes, and most importantly, it's pay-as-you-go, so there's no surprise bills. You just put money in, start doing backups, and you get a statement every month, uh, and you know how much money you have left. So you're never going to get a surprise bill. Anyway, that's all we have for a show for this week. Uh, it's longer than we planned as it is. Uh, so if you have any questions, comments, show ideas, or topics, interview uh, volunteering or suggestions, uh, please reach out feedback at bsdnow.tv. And we'll be back with a regular episode next week, as always.